in good afternoon and welcome to this week's edition of Every Woman. Hi there, I am Rachel. I am one of the hosts today and your board operator live here in the KKFI studios. Joining us via Zoom is uh, one of our co-hostesses and co-producers, Una. Hi, Una. Hello. Very good to be here again. Weren't we just on a call? We oh, were yeah, just on a call. Yes, we're, we're kind of crazy like that on Saturdays. I know. We have to stop meeting like this. People are going to start talking. Or something. <laughs> um, also joining... Bye, the two of you. Also joining us is Fiona via Zoom. Hi there, Fiona. Hi, Rachel. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not just going to sit here silently spying on the two of you. Which is kind of hard to do anyway when everyone can be witnesses out in radio land. That's true. That's very true. Well, I'm so glad that you could both join us today. Um, in our studio, joining us is our special guest this week. Um, she is an herbalist, uh, a sex worker advocate, an activist, and firm believer in uh, wellness and transformative justice. Through her work with Moho Justice, she is working to shape policy, amplify the voices of sex workers, remove stigma of the world's oldest profession, and to make Missouri a safer place for trans folks and sex workers to exist. She's also a practitioner of earth-based spirituality and mutual aid. We are so happy to announce that our guest, Julissa, will be joining the Every Woman family and doing her own segment every second Saturday. Um, So we are going to have her on today so we can, and you as the listening audience, can get to know her a little better. So please welcome to the studio, Julissa Gillick. Hi, Julissa. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here, and I'm honored to be joining the Every Woman family as well. We are so happy that you're here, too, and it's great to see you here in person. Last time you were on the show... I really like having these introductions to, uh, you know, because it it is a really big decision process that we go through on the team to invite someone on to the show. It is... Um, it is a major responsibility because we take this very seriously. We review a lot of candidates, not just there, there, there are great candidates out there that just may have time conflicts or commitments, and we know that they're really, they have really busy schedules. There's other people that think that, you know, it's, it's pretty easy. It's just bringing your favorite CD collection and so forth. And when we finally decide, that someone is, you know, one going to be part of our team. It is a big process, and I think that because of that, it's very important that we do this new thing that we started to do, which is on both the tenth voice and every woman, really have a show dedicated to introduce the newest member to the audience, so they get a feel for the person, what's their background, where they come from. Where are they going? And, um, you know, to really humanize it more because that's what we are about here at KKFI. We are supposed to be the voice of the community, by the community, for the benefit of the community. Yeah, very well said. And um, the three of us as, as producers of the show are very protective of the show as well. So, yeah, it's no small thing. Um, so thank you. Hopefully we haven't scared you away. It's like I see Julissa going for the door. It's like, okay. <laughs> no, I'm no, just not. I'm so honored to be in in space with y'all. It's wonderful. Yeah, not not really. She's she's actually here and and fully present. So, um, so I often like to start these interviews by asking you what your squiggly line story is, i.e., where did you start and what sort of squiggly path did you take to bring you here to Kansas City and um, to the work that you're currently engaged in? Yes, I am originally from Chicago and um, I my work with Moho Justice comes from my background as a sex worker, um, moving away from home at a young age, being queer, being on my own. Um, trying to navigate, figure out my own sexuality, and then also kind of like entering into this whole realm of sex work. Um, As a 
someone who traveled doing conventions, doing like some educational work to just d- getting down with it. Um, <laughs> and I eventually ended up at the Leather Archives and Museum in Chicago where I got to work on some awesome collections, um, dealing with BDSM, alternative sexuality, getting into that a little bit more. And then along the way, I ended up meeting an herbalist in Chicago, Althea Northage Orr, um, is her name, the woman that I studied under. And that opened up my world um, in a whole new way of just learning about connecting to plants, learning about herbal medicine. And at the end of the day, I, I believe that sex work is work. Um, but for me, there's many healing components to it and many of the people that I met and other workers that I got to know um, were naturally healers and had that kind of element to their life and the things that they did. And that inspired me to pursue all kinds of other healing work through herbal medicine. And so I studied in Chicago for a couple years and then through family, I ended up moving down here. Um, This will be my fourth year in Kansas City now. And I just fell in love with the city here. It's beautiful, it's friendly, it's welcoming, and there's lots of opportunity um, with herbal medicine work. I feel like Kansas City has opened up to that so much. So um, yeah, and within that squiggly line, um, (laughs) tying in the, the spiritual component of it is the herbal medicine piece. Once I started studying with plants, I really got into like an earth-based practice of um, honoring the earth, connecting the earth through meditation or just through working directly with plants um, one-on-one and in groups and in community. Yeah, that's, that is a very squiggly line story. And it, it's funny, I hear that um, a lot from folks here, especially who aren't from this area, who have kind of a preconceived notion about what Kansas City is, being sort of a cow town and, you know, in the middle of a cornfield somewhere. It's like, I know I've told folks uh, when I work in the entertainment industry, like, who are from New York, and I say, I'm from Kansas City, and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. And you <laughs> yeah. actually get here, and it's it's kind of a great little spot, actually. It's a, it's a big enough city where there's a lot of opportunities, but there's also... Um, a neighborhood feels like you know there's different pockets of neighborhoods and things all over the city that um, cater to all sorts of different things so yeah I, I had the same experience I came here for grad school and sort of fell in love with the city as well mm-hmm. yeah and you'll get the comment from folks that oh well why did you leave a bigger city for a smaller city or oh I'm sorry that you're here and yes. I'm like I am thriving in Kansas City and <laughs> Uh, it's, it's just beautiful to get to know more of the city, to get to learn more of the history, and it's just so welcoming. I'm I'm just so glad to be to have found my way here. So I, I do have to admit, though, when you were talking about your time in Chicago, you talked about the leather archive. Yeah, can you tell me about that? I'm sort of dig leather stuff. Yeah, so tell me what that is and <laughs> yeah. And what the, you did there. So the Leather Archives and Museum is a leather and alternative sexualities museum in Chicago. Um, it's on the north side of the city, and it started. Chuck Renslow is one of the um, founders of the museum who advocated for leather bars and leather culture. And Chicago hosts the International Mister Leather every year, which is a big leather pageant. Um, for folks that aren't familiar, mostly um, like a gay man's leather pageant. They, it's a whole thing. There's all kinds of festivities. <laughs> There's tons of leather bars and leather history there. So the museum was created out of that Chicago community, um, housing housing things and a lot of personal con- uh, collections and things like that. So I worked a bit in the archive there and I got to work with some personal collections and it's beautiful to have museums like that because sometimes people pass away and you know their family thinks oh BDSM that's taboo and right. there's all of these hang-ups and all of this stigma around this beautiful part of their lives that isn't just sexual it's community it's cultural it's fundraising it's all kinds of things that are intertwined within that so I got to work with some personal collections Um, I also worked on a collection for the Sailor Sid Diller piercing collection which is a big photo archive uh, from the 70s on all of these piercings back when um, piercing was like an underground subculture and there weren't there wasn't the association for professional piercers or piercing shops and it was kind of just a DIY culture 
sounds like sounds sort of like the punk music culture from the 70s when folks you know would make tapes and distribute them and then do little gigs in, in the basements of record stores and stuff totally and that yes. sort of underground vibe that's fascinating i didn't i okay it's on my list the next time I'm in, I'm in chicago i need to check that out that sounds amazing to me there is something very cool about community and finding your community and finding your people which is um so important and yeah, I think it's, you put it really well that, you know, the BDSM and that sort of culture isn't necessarily sexual on, you know, completely. It's mm-hmm. about community and it can be about, you can use that community for all sorts of different things. Definitely. So, yeah. Yeah. It's not just, oh my God, look what we found under Uncle Bob's bed. Yes. He passed away. <laughs> yes. Clear the browser history. <laughs> so, um. Uh, tell me. Yeah, a little... you better. You know, you better just like reinstall Windows. You know, you, may, you may as well just put, put the lap, put the laptop on barbecue grill. He will go to jail. I mean, just just yeah, you just, cannot be too late. Yeah, keep some thermite handy and just kind of put that on there and put it in a brick place and walk away. Just walk away. You could from orbit. That's the only way to be sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, now I'm completely sidetracked, but that's okay. So, uh, in your bio, you talked a little bit about transformative justice. Can you tell me what that means to you? Yeah, what that means to me is um, I look at it as a, a healing arts kind of practitioner on really looking, seeking deep change within our communities, and also, but also tied with like practical solutions, like every day showing up. Um, showing up for folks and that's a part of you know the all of moho justice is mission um is just like illuminating sex workers and their stories and just letting people know that we are whole people and that we deserve everything that you know we deserve everything and and there's a lot of work to be done um in kansas city and in community and to me that's what healing justice is all about and the transformative part is that you're trying to change society's views of, of things? Is that where that comes in? or? Yeah, it's changing the views. It's also making changes in the institutions that are, oh, you know, right. providing um, services or not providing services, you know, making, um, making demands and also learning how to, like, rework organizing that it doesn't necessarily have to be so formal that there should be a degree of pleasure like the idea of pleasure activism coming into play that um, these spaces should be beautiful and fun and not stifling and oppressive right that's that's another interesting term i don't think i've ever heard is pleasure activism what is what does that mean to you yeah um yeah pleasure activism is is about incorporating pleasure practices into ad- advocacy work, oh, okay. into organizational work, um, and just affirming. So with Moho Justice, we did um, an event a couple years ago, and we had this pleasure pledge mm-hmm. of a- affirming your own pleasure in the work that you're doing, as well as affirming um, paid pleasure and things like that, too. So gotcha. pleasure activism is is about making things beautiful, making things pleasurable, um, that it doesn't just have to be about suffering, you know? Gotcha. Um, We need to take our first station break, and when we come back, I see Fiona's got her hand raised, and she'll have a question, so we will be right back after this brief break. And we are back with Every Woman. I am Rachel here in the studio with Julissa Gillig, and joining us on Zoom are Una and Fiona. And just for the break, I think Fiona had a question. Go ahead, Fiona. Oh, it was just a comment about what Julissa just said, that the pleasure activism is very interesting because when you read about anything about depression, a key feature for that is anhedonism, where you don't take pleasure in anything. And people that don't really understand what that means, someone described depression as the ability to see a sunset and to know that it's beautiful, but not to take any pleasure in that beautiful sunset. It's a short-term definition for what depression is. So, so much of our society and culture seems to make people feel guilty for taking pleasure in things, even something as simple as enjoying a sunset. That I think that pleasure activism and trying to 
unmess people's brains where they feel guilty for taking pleasure in anything, whether it's having a glass of wine with a friend or enjoying having sex rather than just having it for reproduction. It, it's really important. People's brains get so messed up and tangled up and everything gets wound up with guilt. And there are fewer things that can mess up a person's brain than that. Yeah, guilt and, and programming from the sort of those the moral majority or religion or whatever is extremely powerful. I know it's a lot of things I've sort of untangled in therapy over the years that have come down to like, oh, that's that was a thing that happened when I was seven and it just like ground into my head. And yeah, it's very powerful. That's yeah, that's very well put. I just never heard the term pleasure activism. It sounds kind of amazing to me. Yes, there's a lovely book on um, pleasure activism that I will show you, give you a little okay. copy of to check it out. Awesome. Yeah, yeah that would be wonderful. Um, so we, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, you're an herbalist and you started started training as an herbalist in Chicago. How, you said a little bit about how that started, but how does that work? Because it seems like such a right turn from what you were doing doing as a, as a sex worker and then all of a sudden it's like yeah I'm, I'm into plants and yeah <laughs> it was so I when I was at the leather archives and museum I worked down the street from an herbalist um, and that became my teacher eventually so I would pass by on my commute her practice and the window is filled with plants and so they had a little shop yeah it, your, it was it's a archive. clinic so people could come in oh, and, and receive um, treatment they had body workers there but they also had a full herbal pharmacy there as well too yes. um, so people wouldn't necessarily come in and buy herbs on their own but they would get some guidance and do a consultation and then receive um, either like a tincture or a tea or some kind of a regimen like that. And so I passed by this place and it just, I became so interested in this, <laughs> in this space. It was so beautiful and it was alluring. And I had, um, being from the city, I, I never had much of like a connection to nature, but I had always had this um, curiosity about natural medicines and um, doing that kind of work it, it has always been something that was interesting to me so one day I decided that I was going to go in finally and see what this place was about and it just so happened that my um, who would become my teacher was starting a new class the following day of students um, it was like the first time in a couple years that she decided to take a class of students and I was like well I'm just gonna roll with this <laughs> <laughs> so I just showed up and everyone was kind of like who are you because most of them knew each other and they had their community of herbalists here and I just showed up like eager eager to learn and um, yeah was curious to make that connection with plants and most herbalists study under someone herbalism is really interesting because you can go to school um, but there's not necessarily like a doctorate or this sure. type of school there's usually like a three-year curriculum that's kind of s similar um, through different schools or independent practitioners as well right but it's not nearly as regimented as becoming a pharmacist or a doctor or something mm -hmm. yeah it, it's pretty open and you have people that learn herbalism through their own um, family and cultural line um, sure. to where that's just kind of a part of their upbringing where they learn from um, an elder grandmother on getting their remedies um, and medicines that way too so there's so many different types of herbalists um, and so many different ways that someone can explore or learn about herbal medicine too. So walk me through this this class you went to. So you walk in literally off the street and you're like, this place looks cool. What what did what did they do? What is what is that like? Yes, yeah, so we had um, we would do a weekly lecture where we would come in for um, three or four hours into the space and in, in like a little makeshift classroom um, and every week we would learn we started just learning about um, herbs like five different herbs a week um, a lot of indigenous plants a lot of locally grown and, and then some just weeds and things like that that we would learn about mm -hmm. um, and then once a month part of the curriculum would be that we would go to 
the land that my teacher grew herbs on in Indiana, which was outside of the city. So we got to have that collective hands-on experience where we would do identification of different plants. We would help tend the gardens there. And then we would all harvest together and do our own medicine making together, making tinctures and tea blends. Um, And that that kind of group learning dynamic that's common with a lot of herbalists will get to experience that or like work in groups and the harvest days are always the most fun when everyone's together (laughs) and you've got a big table and you're all processing herbs and working away at them um yeah and that are there sort of prescribed teas and tinctures like you learn and then you sort of diverge from that or how does how does that work so in, um, the way that I learned is more learning the individual herbs mm-hmm. and then learning some of their chemical constituents and also learning how to blend them for people. So um, there are certain like Chinese medicine patents and things that have existed for a long time of specific recipes of different blends, but a lot of the time you're looking in herbal medicine, you're looking at the individual and figuring out kind of pairing and marrying whatever plants complement what they're coming to you for um, looking at their kind of whole body looking at their medical history even looking at um, what, what they experienced when they were born um, their lifestyle all kinds of things like that and so making custom blends for an individual person and then like in when you're making an herbal blend a lot of times you'll include an herb that's like harmonizer like licorice is a harmonizer gotcha. that will help kind of blend everything together and make it work well gotcha. so 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 essentially you would go in and if I was seeking something I would tell you sort of what was ailing me at first and then you would kind of delve into how I got that way or how does how does I, I guess I'm trying to get at like what what can an herbalist do for you? As yeah. A person? So if people will come to an herbalist, usually if they have um, a pre-existing medical condition or a diagnosis or something like that, and either they're most of the time they're looking to collaborate with an herbalist alongside with their doctor. Like maybe they're gotcha. wanting to get off one or one or two of their prescriptions and they're on you know, a handful of them. Sure. Um, or someone has a condition that's going on and they haven't been able to seek relief or the help that they need from their traditional doctor, so they come to see an herbalist as like an alternative. And then you have some people that are just really into preventative medicine and want to incorporate herbs into their life too. But most of the time someone will come to an herbalist with some with something going on with their health um, or either in recovery from something for their health and then most herbalists are going to be looking at their immediate um, situation, but also looking at their medical history, sure. um, doing kind of like a body scan of checking in with their different organ networks and uh, and then figuring out what herbs that they can pair with them because not all, you know, if someone's on a certain medication, if someone's on a mood support medication, you can't be giving them some St. John's ward if they're on an SSRI or oh, something gotcha. like that. So. There is a lot of attention to detail of just trying to get the whole picture of where someone's at and then figuring out how they can incorporate herbs into their everyday because plant medicines are a lot of the times gentler and they'll need that everyday kind of consistency of figuring out like, okay, how can you make a ritual about having a cup of medicinal tea? (laughs) Um, And like, what's the difference between steeping a beverage tea versus steeping a medicinal tea? Because a medicinal tea, you steep a little bit longer, you might have some more herbs in it, it might taste a little funkier, you need some extra (laughs) honey in there. So just kind of figuring all that stuff out. Wow. That's that's incredible to me. I kind of love that idea, and I especially love the idea of you know trying to sort of wean yourself off of you know if you're on a cornucopia of medicines. I know that's the thing that I went through with my grandmother towards the end of her life because she had so many meds. She had meds that were helping the side effects from other meds and meds that were counteracting other ones because she would see two or three different doctors and there was no one to like put their arms around all of it. And yeah, that's. Mm-hmm. But I could see where you'd have to be very careful, though. Like you said, if someone is, you know, on a an, a mood altering or mood enhancing kind of, you know, regimen because of depression, that you know, some herbs could really interact badly with with those things. Yeah, that's why herbalists are um, great in community, just helping people navigate basically like what they 
what they can and can't take um, and then just helping helping them get paired with the herbs that speak to them because everyone eventually like when people develop relationships with plants like someone has their favorite flower you know someone right. has their favorite herbs or ones that just kind of jump out to them um, so I love encouraging people to use their intuition when they're working with plants and just but also just to make sure that you're getting to check in and um, you know if you're out identifying things that you know you've got a solid ID on whatever you're harvesting and right. all of that nice um, you talked in your bio a little bit about herbalism as a political practice what is the political part of that yeah so um, I see herbalism as inherently political um, because you're working with the land and we're we're on Kickapoo Kaw land right now right. you know we're on um, indigenous land and herbalism has such a, a deep history with all cultures um, you know everyone has some kind of lineage connection to working with herbs um, and it's political because you're working with the land and also because we are we live in a different kind of medicine timeline you know sure. um, it's not as common as it was a hundred years ago to go out and just find your plants connect to them um, and use them in your communities and pull them back in though people have always been doing herbal medicine and in even organizing an activist community there's always herbalists that are a part of it of helping provide resources that people need helping people heal within communities and I just I really believe that, that that having that earth connection however someone can find a way to connect to the earth it really is just such a beautiful gift to to develop that relationship and does that dovetail into the idea of community medicine yes yeah. totally yes um, yeah so community medicine is is about um, building your own kind of community apothecary building resources gathering them together and you'll even see herbalists as street medics that come in and protest and um, help people and help right. people afterwards when they're needing some calm or they're needing their wounds wrapped or things like that too um, that you can totally use plant-based medicines in in so many different ways right so when we when we spoke last week, um, we talked a little bit about your spiritual beliefs and how you engage in um, earth-based spiritual practices. Can you talk a little bit about some of that? Yeah, definitely. So for me, when I started working with plants, it kind of opened me up spiritually. I grew up in in a conservative Catholic kind of household and just always felt um, like an outsider, and I just didn't. I just didn't agree with the, the beliefs just weren't mine right. my own yes um so i kind of shut off my own spirituality or my own that kind of peace within myself that i had and when i started working with plants and going out and harvesting and spending time in the woods it really just started to open up my spirit in a way um to where i felt like this incredible love you know this this incredible love coming from the earth and from plants and tapping into that really was just like kind of mind-melding to me <laughs> and um, at the same time my my herbal teacher had her own kind of esoteric practice and we had this beautiful Kabbalah garden on her land mm -hmm. that was um, the tree of life and with all these little gardens that were representative of the planets and all of the plants growing in them associated with the planet and oh, wow. getting to learn about um, that that kind of history of using plants magically as well as medicinally so um, whether it's for someone to to do a meditation, whether it's for someone in kind of a transition in their life and needing some more support. So, um, and with that too, I began working with moon cycles. So like I'd harvest something and I'd have my tincture sitting for a full moon cycle, a tincture <laughs> being a, a liquid herbal medicine gotcha. to where I did a lot of like folk methods. So brandy plants in a jar, chop them up, let them sit for a moon cycle and shake them every day and I just became connected to that um, 
And so when I moved here, I ended up meeting one of my um, friends now, and we decided that we wanted to start doing moon circles together. So her and I just started at her house with friends that were similarly interested in working with the moon and connecting to the earth. And we began hosting these circles together um, and just allowing us to share in sacred space. So mm-hmm. it kind of like touches back on that idea of pleasure activism, of making something pleasurable. And for me, making time that is sacred became something that really just like transformed my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's um, you said two really interesting things there. The first being how you sort of turned away from Christianity because it wasn't, those weren't your beliefs. And it's amazing how when you sort of shut that off because it's not your belief, you, you tend to shut off all spiritual stuff because when you're only exposed to one kind and you're like, oh, this does not feel right, this this isn't me, you kind of shut it off. I mean, that's that was my experience too growing up in a Lutheran church and a Lutheran uh, tradition. Uh, None of it made sense to me. I didn't like any of it. I was forced to do this thing. And when I sort of rejected it, I closed myself off to anything that was sort of outside of myself. So that awakening is a huge part of it, I think, of spirituality. Totally. And and people experience that in so many different ways and find their faith or find what works for them. Um, But I think that is totally such a common experience of just being like, okay, well, this isn't for me, so I just need to close it all off. Right. Um, and then inadvertently you know. shut everything off. Yeah. <laughs> like everything shuts down. Yeah. Um, so tell me about these about the moon circle rituals and how did how did that sort of evolve from something you were doing just with your friends? Yeah. So I originally met um, Carrie Parker, who I collaborate with at Sacred Psyche, and we um, she has her own therapy practice and kind of left left having um, a you know military traditional psychoanalyst therapist background to provide therapy in a space that just is, is a little bit more open, less clinical, less focused around diagnosis, um, though that exists you know for folks that need it and want it, sure. but just to have an alternative kind of therapy space too. So I that space, sacred psyche is where I also get to do my herbal medicine, making and things like that and we collaborated with these circles and eventually grew them to where we could open them up to the public because a lot of people with either paganism or wicca or um, just even an earth-based spiritual practice yoga practitioners Mm -hmm. so many people have their own kind of independent or isolated practice and we just wanted to be able to hold space sacred space folks could come um, and join a circle and they're not necessarily going to be signing up for anything or (laughs) you know doing some rite or joining a coven or it's more just about holding sacred space together Um, we often call it like alternative group therapy a moon circle but a moon circle in general just is a gathering under the moon um, working with whatever cycle or phase the moon is in so we were meeting on the full moon and just kind of um, the full moon a lot of times is about like a closing, a completion of energy. So we would do, we would gather and do a meditation or do some kind of a group spell work of something that's just enhancing our lives or, or honoring something that we accomplished or just holding that space to feel connected to the earth. Um, and connected to the to the moon, and it's so many people have gathered under the moon or follow it um, and work with it, and sure. it influences the tides. There's just such like um, an intensity and a beauty to working with it. Even not just the full moon in my religion, uh, the new moon, the abs- visible absence of the moon is the most uh, sacred time of the month. Uh, for uh, Shakti Hinduism. Yes, totally. Did it feel did it feel strange at first to sort of bring the general public into your kind of sacred space, your moon circle? It honestly felt awesome. Okay. <laughs> 
kids. It was just awesome to to have. Um, I I love holding space for for people for you know that I think that's just kind of a part of of who I am. So just being sure. able to have people come in and be like, wow, that was a really good experience. <laughs> like I I love that. Like because um, I know what it feels like when you try something new or you first enter a new group of people and you, the self doubt kicks in or you're like, do I belong here? What well, you know? Right. I remember the first time I went to my teacher's land in this herbal class and everybody knew everything and knew each other and I was like what am I doing here (laughs) (laughs) am I gonna make any friends like should I just turn around and leave and you know of course I'm so glad that I I usually will let that kind of part of myself just dissipate and and you know fall into the background and just try to be present so having it um, it's an honor to be able to have people trust you to enter that kind of space um especially because everyone has their own comes with their own practices they come with their own magic they come with their own culture and background as well too so it's just it's so cool that like every time we gather um and they're open to the public that someone new comes and it'll be like someone's first time in a group like that and it's just so awesome to have to share that experience yeah i know that um it can be really daunting because, um, like you were saying, a lot of folks sort of piece together ritual for themselves and maybe are practicing it, you know, in in their backyard or, you know, at their altars or whatever in their houses and things. And to sort of open it up to a wider circle, literally, um, can be a little daunting because, yeah, you're like, am I doing it right? Is this how it's done? And the funny thing is it's, it's nothing like that because everyone is sort of doing what feels good to them and just being in a community of like-minded individuals um just is so freeing Mm -hmm. and you know feels good yes definitely so um going back now to back to the battle days in chicago before you came, (laughs) came here to kansas city i i am interested in your story of you know how you started with with sex working in in chicago and what sort of brought you to that yeah, I started, um, I got into sex work originally as kind of like an, a nude model, um, alternative model. I had a friend who was doing modeling work and I was like, oh, I could do that. I was, I have a body, you know, I was, <laughs> yeah, I just moved out on my own as a teenager and I was, um, you know, working all of these jobs and I was frustrated and I was like, I'm I need something to change and so I started doing some nude modeling alternative modeling um, eventually I was hired by a user-generated fetish porn website <laughs> that's a mouthful, that is a mouthful <laughs> yes. um, but as a promotional model so I got to travel at different conventions like they have the AVN show in oh, sure. Vegas every year um, the Exotica shows all of these kinds of conventions around sexuality and I got to just be in this kind of chaotic sexually charged like rowdy environment and would just do performances would um, also like educate people on how you can make your own porn these days and <laughs> Um, also like learning about um, educating people on alternative sexuality like BDSM and fetishes and like what's all that about Um, so I did that work and then I also just did general sex work Um, I worked as a dominatrix for a long time at a dungeon a professional dungeon in Chicago Mm -hmm. Um, and that was very interesting and um, just like yeah, I'm. I feel very grateful to be able to just be fully out with my with that part of my life and that yeah. story. And it's not every not everyone is comfortable being like totally out as a worker because it's not, not every day that someone's just like, oh yeah, I was a professional dominatrix right. for several years, <laughs> like casual, you know. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I did. I did. I've kind of been um in a bunch of different lanes of sex work. Like mm-hmm. I've experienced it in in many different ways and different types of the work itself because it is expansive. Right. Um, and there's all kinds of, you know, there's all kinds and types of sex work too. So sure. I, I 
played around with it for a long time and um, eventually when I started working at the Leather Archives and Museum I just hit this place of kind of fulfillment with it as a full-time profession I and that led to me just transitioning more into the herbal medicine things like right. that too I was like okay I've kind of experienced a lot here I've learned a lot <laughs> I've met a lot of different people. I've uh, come across like all kinds of very interesting perversions and things like that. And I was like ready for the next next venture. The next thing. That seems like it would be hard to top, however. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it sounds very, like it was very liberating for you though. I mean, uh, the just, just the idea of being a nude model to me just blows my mind because I have I don't have the confidence to do something like that and it sounds to you like it was like a very positive thing a very liberating experience for you yeah a lot of my experience um, is very very liberating and empowering and it's interesting because like a sex workers often have to either play the role of the like invic- the victimized sure. individual or the empowered individual so there's always a mix of that, it's like a binary in, everywhere. Yeah, it's like, like we need to the, the binary. Yes, we totally do. <laughs> um, but it was it was so empowering to just be able to be, you know, comfortable with comfortable with my body and comfortable just getting down to it and getting weird with other people. You know, like it's it's very that was very liberating for me, and I've always kind of had a very rebellious spirit, so I fully embraced it. Right. Yeah, once it was presented. And I, I, I assume that your experiences as a sex worker and in that industry has then inspired you to sort of work with Moho Justice um, to sort of help the folks that didn't have an awesome time at sex work and as, you know, caught in the sort of darker side of sex work, too. Yeah, definitely. And um, working as an herbalist, it's have being able to provide healing resources to sex workers and their communities is just so it's such a blessing for me to have that um, be a part of my life now too sure. and to let people know that the more that we destigmatize and decriminalize workers the more they can be their full authentic selves and really come out and share their stories and also help prevent violence that destigmatizing sex work does prevent harm um and it's it's so powerful just to spread that message and also to let people know that we're that moho justice exists and that if some you know there's a worker who's experiencing violence or criminalization now in missouri that there's more resources than there were before that all began right that's wonderful. Well, we are coming up against the last break of our show, so we're going to go ahead and take this now. Uh, and we will be right back with more from Julissa Gillick. And we are back on the Every Woman program. I am Rachel here behind the board. We are in studio with Julissa Gillig and on Zoom, Una and Fiona. So uh, right before the break, we touched a little bit on Moho um, Justice. Can you give me a little bit of an overview of what that organization is and what they do? Yes. Yeah, so Moho Justice is an organization that's focused around trans justice and liberation as well as the destigmatization, decriminalization of sex work, and it's tied to um, black liberation work as well, too, with a lot of the organizations that we collaborate with as well. So Moho Justice emerged because in Missouri, there isn't visibility as far as sex workers go, that they're, they still face violence and criminalization. So it's providing uh, a platform for there's entertainment events and things like that for creative outlets for workers to share their stories. Um, Moho Justice also published a report that is on the mohojustice.com website. And that report goes into the findings from a survey that we took um, during the beginning of the pandemic of workers, of what their experiences were in the state. And the report also provides um, city-specific policy that exists. And so part of the Moho Justice work, too, is is shaping policy um, to protect trans folks and sex workers and to, to decriminalize the trade in general, too. And we have a, 
a big um, effort in St. Louis, an emerging effort in Kansas City here, and we plan on being able to serve rural workers throughout the whole state of Missouri eventually as well, too. So it sort of sounds like a sort of twofold. One is to sort of raise awareness that these folks exist and that they're just human beings trying to make a living and also sort of to make policy change as well. Yes, definitely. Cool. This is always a very controversial subject because we will, uh, actually I will note that we will get uh, emails and phone calls in when we have someone on the program talking about sex positivity in sex work. And if someone talks about uh, negativity of sex work, we will get, uh, usually we'll get about four to five times the number of calls uh, opposed to that. Uh, the audience, at least the audience uh, sample that seems to be tuned into us seems to view sex work more directly as work rather than something sinful, evil, something to be ashamed of, and so forth. Um, so I, I don't know what to make of that, but except to say that it is a is the subject that's going to be discussed for quite some time, and there can be a lot of very interesting discussions about it. So it's being a dominatrix. <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed. Oh, and which for me actually doesn't have any sexual component at all in it. Uh, so that is um, a whole different uh, way of looking at it. That's very true. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we've had guests on before that actually don't so like. How the, would you know it's very true? Because uh, because I know who you are. <laughs> oh, okay. Never mind. I, I might have heard one or two stories, perhaps. Yeah. Okay. Or I don't know. Oh, My yeah, memory's yeah. faulty. I don't know who, Sorry, who it was told a me cheap those joke. things. I, I couldn't resist. Let's, um, let's go and be respectful to our new host. Right. Who knows who, who I've heard these things from. Uh, what I was going to say is that we've had some guests on that actually take offense a little bit to the term sex work because they says they say it normalizes it and diminishes the struggle of folks who are involved in sex work against their will. What would you say to that? Yeah, I think everyone has their own language that they're comfortable with. So sure. for me, um, for me, identifying as a sex worker is something that I'm comfortable with. I remember back when I was like uh, just doing nude modeling and I identified as a sex worker to a photographer and they're like, don't say that you're a sex worker. (laughs) That you're not a sex worker, you're a model. Right. And I'm like, to me, that's, uh, you know, that's just the language that I'm comfortable with. uh, We, Moho Justice collaborates with the Erotic Labor Alliance of New Hampshire. um, And that's what they're comfortable with, the term erotic labor Mm -hmm. and... I think that to me it's about more the message that sex work is work and that I don't want that message to um, downplay the ex- lived experiences of the folks that are in on you know the front lines of it and right. doing the work um, and at the same time there needs to be an acknowledgement though that at the end of the day, this is how someone's getting their resources or needs met through what they're doing and that they should not be criminalized or harmed for consensually doing what they're doing. Right. No, that's very well put. Una? I think the thing, too, that's important to focus on is the term is work. Work is a means to an end. Whether you... It is something that you choose willingly to do, and you are comfortable, happy, you are in a safe space there, or whether it is something you are doing to survive, it's accurate. It's an accurate term in either case. I mean, for some people, work is absolutely dreadful. Like I'm, and I think my, what, my 90th hour of work this week already. So, uh, in other. Other people work is quite fun and pleasing and fulfilling to them. So it sex work is work seems to me to be equally applicable regardless of either side of that fence, I guess. Yeah, I think it's Julissa put it really well when he said it's the terminology you're comfortable with and and not and it does not diminish the lived experiences of folks 
um, mm-hmm. who are in it as well. So we have just a couple minutes left on the program. I would love, Julissa, for you to tell us a little bit about what we might have in store for your monthly segment here on Every Woman. Yes. I am, again, just so honored to be a part of the Every Woman show and to be in the mix with y'all. It's so wonderful. I'm just super excited. And for the show, I was thinking about the idea of there's a concept of like a a body politic that a city or a community or a state is one body um, collectively of looking at it like a body and Mm -hmm. thinking about wellness on an individual level and then on a community level too. So I wanted to bring in on the show um, Kansas City wellness practitioners, um, women and queer folks and femmes who are doing the work in the city here um, either on an individual scale as a body worker um, who also works at an organization an herbalist that might be doing some some work as well one one person that came to mind was uh, Justice Gatson who is with the Real Justice Network and does participatory defense mm-hmm. of yep. helping people um, stay out of the carceral system and then also does work as an herbalist within community. So just having those conversations of people doing the work in Kansas City, of what that looks like for them, their own kind of wellness rituals, um, and then things that are things that they're involved in and the groups that they're doing as far as like collective healing, um, that pleasure activism, that transformative justice work here in Kansas City. Awesome. We definitely will look forward to that and having you on every second Saturday here on Every Woman. Do you have any final thoughts, Una or Fiona, before we wrap up? I think this brings an entirely different uh, dimension, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how the conversation on a larger scale proceeds over the months and years yes we'll grab a commitment for for several years and uh, right and see contract for you. really where it takes us and i'd like to maybe see at times you know to open up more to the audience too to find out what the audience feels about some of these issues because these seem like things that are more approachable for a lot of folks out there for a lot of our listeners yeah thank you well, we need to get out of here because the next show is going to come in um, very soon. So thank wow. you so much for joining us for this edition of Every Woman. Join us every Saturday at 3 o'clock for another stimulating conversation. You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Have a fantastic weekend.